know we had that announcement um, about the food pantry, but if I get started, I just want to really encourage you to think and pray about the food pantry. Um, I think that it, it's tricky hours, right? There, there's no way around it. Um, but hopefully you saw the note in Journeying Together, and there's different ways you can think about volunteering, creative ways you can think about volunteering. Um, I think that there's a lot of things we do as a church um, that gets us into our community, that gets us serving and loving our neighbors. But um, let's be reminded that one of the ways that Jesus asked us to love our neighbors is to feed them. Um, so maybe there's a the way you can volunteer that you haven't thought about, or maybe there's someone you know who's looking for volunteer hours. We'll take them too, okay? Um, it's, it's, um, it's a very, very uh, important ministry, but it's also a chance for us to just love our neighbors. So hopefully you took that to heart, and if there's a way you can help us out, a way you can volunteer, I think that would be wonderful. Um, this morning, I'm, I'm jumping back into our, our God at Midnight series. One of the things that we've been kind of saying, our, our major theme here is just that, you know, God is there with us in darkness and God is there with us in power. And as we've looked through this Midnight series, one of the things that's actually been shocking to me is that every single midnight seems to be really good for God's people. You know, I had this appearance of midnight darkness is bad, right? I think I watched too many, uh, I was going to say Star Wars, but we all know that's a lie. Um, I think I watched too many movies where, like, light versus dark, right? I tried to watch Star Wars, I fell asleep, I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, I think I watched too many movies where it's just light versus dark, the ultimate, right? But, but I think when you go into scriptures, you realize that there's an inevitability that comes with darkness, but God wants his people to be comforted because God is going to be with us. And as we've talked about midnight, we've said that in our lives, in scripture, you'll see midnight sometimes as a point of time, right? There's a certain time in life, or it might be a place you're, you're even physically in, or a position or situation. Um, and, and as we've gone through these stories, we've seen that midnight can come from hardened hearts, uh, for taking steps in the wrong direction, from enemies who are actually attacking you from not knowing the future and the unknown. And, and sometimes midnight's even a surprise, right? You think you're throwing a banquet and then there's a handwriting on the wall, right? Surprise. Um, but as I thought about this week and, and, and this story, I feel like we've kind of set up this, this, this posture, this position of, of midnight is inevitable, you know? And, and, and it's good because we've been looking at it as like midnight comes, God moves, what do we learn from it? And that's awesome. But I think it, it's kind of not getting the whole story because it, it's, it's, it's too reactive. Right. And it's, it's, it's kind of like I feel like I feel like the sermons have been good, but all of them have been set up to be reactive. Like it's midnight. Something happens. God does something. We learn from it. I think the shift in, in, in movement this week is that this story invites us to be reactive. Right. To know that, yeah, midnight might be inevitable to know that midnight is coming. But what are we supposed to be doing? It's good to see God moves and learn from it. But how are we to move during midnight? I think if you want a midnight preparation story, a very good one is the one we're going to go to this morning, uh, the parable of the ten virgins or bridesmaids. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 25. I believe we'll have it up front. I'll be reading verses 1 to 13, so you can follow up front as well. Matthew 25, starting at verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. 
Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's pray together. Our Father, God, we thank you so much that in the inevitability of every midnight, whether it's a time, whether it's a place we're in or a situation that we're in, we thank you that we can rely on you, that we can rely on you to be there with us, that we can rely on you to not only be ahead of us, but actually walking through the darkness with us, that we can rely on you to move in power, that we can rely on you to move for our good. But now, Lord, this morning, as we look at this parable, as we come back to this teaching, may we be reminded that midnight has come and it's coming. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you prepare us to end midnight to live well. Our Father and our God, we pray that you prepare us to love well. And Jesus, our Christ, we pray that you prepare us to leave well too. In your holy and precious name, amen. So we've preached about parables before. Um, we've talked about how they were, you know, earthly stories with kingdom meanings. One of my first Bible teachers is a guy by the name of Jim Van Duzer, um, suffered a, a massive stroke a couple weeks ago. And, and what's been fascinating is to, to watch not just his recovery, but the reliance on God even through stroke. The reliance on God even when your body's failing. The reliance and then the faith of his family all around him. And I thought about him a lot this week because that was one of the first lessons I learned, right? And he would say, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, you know? Then I became Anabaptist, so I changed it to earthly stories with a kingdom meaning, right? Because I feel like heavenly kind of ignores the fact that the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is here, right? And I think a lot of times when we think about heaven, we just think about the kingdom that's coming. I want you to hold on to that because I think a lot of times when we look at this parable, we only think about what? The kingdom that's coming. But remember our Jesus who reminds us the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is here. And I think if we hold on to that, we might get something new from this passage as well. If you, if you, if you realize about, if you, as you've studied parables, you know that, yeah, they're earthly, everyday stories, kingdom meanings. But I think one of the brilliant or maybe the brilliant thing about parables is that Jesus kind of shows off a little bit. He shows off of, of how great of a teacher he is. And that's because Jesus in all these parables is able to start with where the people are before carrying them to where he desires them to be. And a classic example I always say is, you know, I have two daughters, right? And, and I remember when Kennedy was learning her alphabet, right? It'd be really funny if after she learned her alphabet, I come in the next day and I said, you know what, E equals MC squared, right? It just wouldn't make sense. So a teacher has to be able to start with where they are and then take them to where God wants them to be or take them to where you want them to be. And that's what Jesus does in these parables. But in so doing, Jesus transforms. He transforms the way people think. He transforms the way they think about God, the way they think about themselves, the way they think about the life, the way they think about the world. That's why these aren't just heavenly meanings to come. They're kingdom meanings because they, they will have a, a play in the world to come, but they can also help us today, right? Transforming how we think about God, ourselves, the life, and the world. One author said parables are like a mirror in that we see ourselves in them. And I get that part. But he says the harder part is that parables are not just mirrors, but they're also windows meaning they allow you to see out into the world. 
So when we get to this parable of the ten virgins, now some translations will call them ten bridesmaids, which I would argue is actually a better translation, and then we'll see that as we go into first century weddings, right? As a kid, I was really confused about this parable. I was like, why they got to be virgins? Why they need lights and lamps? But I think the better translation is actually a ten bridesmaids. And I think the reason that is is because Jesus is talking about a first century wedding. We'll get to that in a little bit. In this parable, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins or, or bridesmaids with lamps to meet the groom, right? One of the reasons I think bridesmaids is a better translation is because some people would be like, well, is he marrying ten people? That's weird, right? And I think that's one, that's just, this is a lot, we can go into the Greek if you want. There's a lot of reasons why it's bridesmaids, but like just practically, right? Ten bridesmaids and, and they're, they're, the kingdom of heaven is like them. They're waiting to meet the groom. Now, one of the things that's fascinating here is that Matthew goes back into wisdom literature. In the Proverbs, they talk a lot about the wise woman and the foolish woman. So he breaks down the, the, the bridesmaids into these two groups. He says, you know what? Five of them were foolish, right? They took lamps without oil. And this isn't an intellect thing, but it's a preparation thing. Right? He's not saying, oh, they're foolish because they're not smart enough or, or they just don't have the capability of being smart. He's saying they're foolish because they're not prepared. That's important for us. Right? This isn't an intellect thing. This isn't a how much you love God thing. This isn't even a how much you love your neighbor thing. It's whether or not you're actually wise enough to be prepared. So who were the wise? They took lamps with oil, so they were prepared. Now, the groom was a long time coming. Now, for a lot of us, we're just like, it's your wedding day. What, are you nervous, right? In that culture, we can't, like, our weddings are different. It's almost like if you take someone from that culture and you brought them to one of our weddings, you'd be like, you guys are weird, right? It's kind of the same thing that's happening here. So a lot of times, the groom, which we'll get into when we break down the engagement story, but just say on the wedding day, per se, the groom doesn't just get to go to the bride's house, Right? He's got to visit family. He's got to visit friends. And you know, friends and family on your wedding day, everybody wants to bless you. Everybody wants you to sit down and talk. Everybody wants to be like, I got advice for you, right? Like, he's like, you're getting married, let me give you advice. And as a groom, you can't be like, listen, it's my wedding day. I don't want to get advice from my father. It just doesn't work that way, right? So that's why even though the bridesmaids are waiting and the bride is waiting, it might take him a long time coming. So we know in the story that the groom is taking a long time coming and they all fall asleep. Which again points us to the fact that like, it wasn't just, oh, it's a long day. But in that culture, and in some of that culture even till today, their weddings are at night. Right? That's different for us, right? Our weddings are usually during the day. So I want you to hold on to that because it's not just they were tired and they fell asleep. The weddings were at night, which would make sense of why they would need torches. Right? And not only would they need torches, if he's taking a long time at his grandmom and his grandma's best friend, and his dad, and his uncle, maybe he has 10 uncles, you know? I ran out of count with uncles. My grandmom had 68 siblings, right? So, like, if this was me, you just might as well plan for the week, right? Like, it's just like, we're just going to go to anybody's house, right? But he takes a long time coming. It's at night. They fall asleep. Now, there's a loud cry at midnight. It's an invitation to say the groom is coming. Now, what this isn't is that the groom is here. Right? I think that's important. Because if he's here, it's just like, let's just run out and get him. It's like, he's coming. So that's why there's a panic as the bridesmaids wake up. There's a panic because they're like, wait, he's coming. He's not quite here yet. We need some oil. Can you give me some of your oil to share? Now, the wise bridesmaids are just like, well, I mean, <laughs> if we give you some of our oil, <laughs> now we're not going to have enough. And then we both miss out, right? So we can't. Why don't you go in and, and see if people are buying or selling oil and maybe you can get some, you know? 
And, and so that's what they do. The, the foolish ones go off to buy oil. Now, again, to me, I thought that was weird, but, it, but here's the thing. If weddings are at night and people need torches, another thing you have to remember is that, um, or maybe not remember, maybe we don't know, but uh, one thing is that the, the torches that they use were most likely rags that were, were soaked that you could just light up and they would go out after 10 or 15 minutes, right? So that's another thing. Some of us have a picture of like a lamp, right? It's just like you light the lamp and you're good for the whole night. That's not what it was. It was literally a torch, and it might blow out, right? So that's why you need consistent oil to keep wetting it, wetting it, wetting it, to keep it going, right? And, and so they didn't have that. So they go out, and finally while they're out, the groom arrives. The prepared ones go into the banquet, into the wedding, into the feast. The unprepared show up. They knock on the door, and they're not invited in. And a groom says something that I thought was a little harsh, right? Open the door to us. He says, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And I thought about, if it's bridesmaids, you might not know them. You know, like, it's just, you might not know them. It's possible, right? Now, there's obviously symbolism and all that stuff. But the point is, because they were unprepared, they were not allowed into the banquet. And the message that we've pulled from this is that last verse, keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. So midnight for us in this story is being unprepared when a groom comes back. Unprepared when a groom comes back. Now for a lot of us, we take that to mean eternity, right? Have you made the decision to follow Jesus? But I would say that's only answering half of the question. Because the kingdom isn't just coming, the kingdom has come. But before we get to that, we got to go back to first century weddings and what they would have understood about first century weddings. So, for example, if I told you this is like a Hallmark Christmas movie, you would know the formula. And if you didn't, you'd ask Pastor Hannah and she'd be able to give you a Ph.D. dissertation on it, right? Like, Hallmark movies have a certain formula. Now, for those of you who don't frequent in Hallmark movies, maybe you still read my favorite Willie Shakes, right? If I told you there's a formula in a Shakespeare play, you'd be like, yes, Henry. There's an exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, the denouement. I'd be like, yes, that, right? What I want us to understand about the first century weddings is that there's a formula of understanding that the people would have had, and this is what Jesus is working with. So let's go back to the first century. In the first century, when a woman or a young woman came of age, right, it's a different time and place, but coming of age back then was 13, 14, right? It's a little icky for us, it's a little weird, there's no way around it, right? But back then, that was the age of consent, that was the coming of age, right? Now at 13, 14, something fascinating happened. The father would make an announcement, and the father would be like, hey, my daughter's of age. Put it out there. As a father, I don't think I'll ever make this announcement, that's just me. You know, just putting that out there, right? I don't think I'll ever make that announcement. But the father would make this announcement, my daughter's of age. And then all the other fathers in the neighborhood, in the community, maybe even the country, would then start being suitors, right? They would go and they would try to make a deal with this father and be like, this is why my son is great. This is why you should choose my son. This is why my son should marry your daughter. Now, what's fascinating is that this is still within a patriarchy. This is still within a time and a place where women don't have autonomy, don't have voice, don't have a, a choice. Yet within the God of Israel, within Yahweh, there's something very different than their weddings. Because yes, the fathers would make the deal. And so maybe she has 50 or 100 suitors. He would pick one. And he would shake the other dad's hand. I just made that up. I don't know if they shake hands, right? Whatever they did back then, right? Probably that covenant meal, right? Broke bread or something. But they would make the deal and they would agree. 
after they made the grill and agreed, they would throw an engagement party. Now, the engagement party was a celebration, but it was also a proposal. Because at that engagement party, with all your friends, all your family, maybe the entire neighborhood present, that young man would have to get a cup of wine, walk across the room, and go to that young lady and basically say, will you marry me in front of all our friends and family? Now, what's different about the Israelite or the first century Jewish weddings compared to other first century weddings is that the young woman had the choice to say yes or no. Think about that for a second. I flash back to middle school. Some of us were scared to walk across the room to ask a girl to dance. Right? Now, now this is like you're walking across with all your friends and family, the whole neighborhood present, and you it's, it's a humbling experience. You're like, will you marry me and take the cup? And she's like, now nah, you're ugly. What? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I don't know if they had therapy back then, but you need therapy, right? But, but the point I'm making is that even after the fathers made the deal, she still had the autonomy, the voice, the reason to say yes or no. And, and, and if she did say yes, the young man might give a speech, because now he's feeling himself, right? Now he's like, yeah, yeah, this is my woman, this is my wife, yeah? But he might give a speech to talk about their future. And in the speech, he might say something like this. Hey, listen, you're just going to stay here and enjoy the rest of the party. I got to go. I'm going to go back to my father's house. You know my dad. He's got a lot of rooms, right? But I'm going to actually make a room for you. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to prepare a place for you because I want you to be where I am, right? And when it's finished, I'm going to go back and come for you. Does that sound familiar? That's the same thing Jesus does in John 14. Again, it's this hallmark story, right? It's the first century wedding. Jesus does the same thing. So there's speech that he would have given, and Jesus gives in John 14. Every single person in that audience, whether they were married or not, right, would know what he was talking about. That's the speech at the engagement party that the person would give and say, listen, like, I'm going to go and prepare this house for you. Here's the fascinating thing about the house. The young man did not know when the house was ready because he would build, right? And, and the dad might have to consider that this is intergenerational. We might have two, three generations living on the property. You might have other brothers, you know, like I don't want a house too big for the next brother to take out his space. You might need something like, I don't know, a kitchen, you know? You might need like a roof. So, so the, the young man would just work, 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 work until the father said it was ready. Now, after he leaves the party, they would celebrate, but starting the next day, the bride would learn how to run a household in that first century. The, the bride would learn how to, how to be a partner in this relationship, and, and she, too, will not know when it ends. Now, remember, weddings happen at night, so every single night, the bride would have to what? Light a lamp, put it in the window, because he just might come back that night. And if he came back that night, what would he do? He would gather the bridesmaids, right? He would gather the torches, and he would go to the bride's house. And how would he know which room was hers? Because there would be a light in the window. This is the context that Jesus is working within. This is the context. This is their Hallmark movie. They all would have known the formula. They all would have known, like, this is what's happening. But Jesus tells this parable to say, I know y'all think y'all understand this Hallmark movie. Y'all understand this Shakespeare play. Y'all understand what's going on. But it's really like this. I, Jesus, am the groom. I, Jesus, am the one who's making heaven perfect for you. I do not know when it will be perfect for you. Only the Father knows. But when the Father comes back, 
I will gather the bridesmaids, and I will go and get my bride. And the work of the bride of Christ now is to learn how to live with Jesus, our groom. The work is how do we prepare now to live for eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. So we have rightly, I would say, told half of the story by saying, are we ready for Jesus to return? I told a story this week in the, the video, which I was struggling because I was looking everywhere, right? But in the video blog this week, I told a story about working at a, or going to a summer camp. And this one year, they said, we're going to do challenge week, right? And I was like, challenge? I could do all your challenges, right? Until the first night, they woke us up at midnight. And I'm just like, what is going on here? It's a busy week. We're kids. We need sleep, you know? They get dragged us out to the pole, and they're just like, Jesus can come back at any time. And I was like a 12, 13 year I was like, well, we all know that. Like, do you really need to wake us up to tell us that? And they're like, well, have a good night. And they just left, right? Which a bunch of 13, 15, 16-year-olds, that really riled us up, right? But the point they were trying to make is Jesus can come at any time. Are we prepared? And I think if we think about the kingdom coming, we go to the eternity of salvation, we have to ask that question. When Jesus comes back, are we prepared? Have we acknowledged that not just all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God, but what my sin has earned is death and separation from God? Have we all acknowledged that, the, the, yes, the, what I've earned is death and separation from God, but praise God for the Holy Spirit that convicts. Praise God for Jesus who saves. And praise God who makes it possible that I can come to salvation. Because Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So the question that we ask in this parable is, for eternity, are we prepared for Jesus to return? But as I thought about you this week, and I thought about our congregation this week, and I said, you know, maybe there's one or two people that I don't know, maybe they're in here, who have not made this decision. So I want you to take the time to make that decision. And maybe you're watching online, you've never made that decision. I want you to take the time to make that decision, because Jesus is coming back. And either you're going to prepared, or you're not. But the thing is, there's a majority of us, by my estimation, it could be as much as 75, 85, 95, 99% of us, maybe, who've already made that decision. So what does this parable have to say to us? Because we're like, well, I made that decision. I got my get out of jail free card. I'm good. You know, when he comes back, I'm good, right? But if the kingdom is not just coming, it's already come, that should have something to say us in the here, in the now. It should have something to say to us in the everyday. Because if eternity being ready is having salvation secured in Jesus, maybe the word of this parable is that today we must be sanctified and set apart. If Jesus' salvation saves us eternally, may the Holy Spirit's sanctification, sanctification save us every single day. Heaven is being prepared for when Jesus and the kingdom that's coming. But in the here and now, are we prepared for the kingdom that has come? I think that's what this parable is also saying. Are you prepared for the kingdom that has already come? There's a lot of people who believe that when Jesus was saying this parable, he wasn't necessarily talking to the church. That if the church is the bride, she's basically working to figure out how to do life to, together with Jesus and preparing for that day. That this, this parable was actually to Israel. And, and, and that makes sense a little bit. Because Jesus was saying that, like, I need you to be the house of prayer for all the nations. 
I need you to be the light of the world. So it would make sense that Israel then would need to have the bridesmaid's torches that would lead him to find his bride. But I think even more than that, as I thought about this week, if the kingdom has already come, how do I live a life of preparation now? What does preparation mean? It can't be saying that one prayer and having my eternity secured. What does it mean to be prepared now? I came up with these three things. I think it means we ought to be right now living well. We ought to be loving well. We ought to be preparing to leave well. We need to live well. Now, for a lot of us, that might mean physical, right, exercising more. For some of us, that might mean focusing on our mental health. For others of us, it might be emotional, financial, spiritual. But I think the essence of living well in preparation for the kingdom isn't just what you do with your physical body or your mental state. It's whether or not you're living a life of submission to the Holy Spirit. If you want to live well, you ought to be submitting to the Spirit every single day. The writer of Romans says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body, which is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because the spirit who lives in you. Therefore, sisters and brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If we want to live well, we ought to be submitting to the Spirit. The why is there in Romans 8, 5 to 14. The how for me is every single day I try to pray this prayer. God, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. That's how I try to begin every single day. And I think that's what we ought to be doing in every single moment, asking the spirit to intervene, to transform, to speak through, to work through, to live inside of me. It has to be an everyday submission. You don't just get to submit to the spirit once and then you're good. You must submit to the spirit every day. Every hour, every minute, every interaction, every action, every word, every deed. We must live lives to submission to the Spirit. That is how we live well. And if you start submitting to the Holy Spirit now, and you're living well now, when the kingdom does come in all its glory, you will be prepared. But we also ought to be loving well. And this one was easy, because I like to say this thing, live in love like Jesus. I wanted to make this about Jesus but the more I thought about it, Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But to this audience, when they thought about a God loving well, they would have thought about Yahweh, the Father. What does it mean that God positions himself as a servant for his people? 
They would have known God as Yahweh, the one who was, the one who is, the one who will be, the one who works for their behalf. But perhaps some of them would have known God as a savior, as the one who left them out of Egypt, who brought them into the promised land, who sent them judges and prophets and kings, who was always on their side, who fought for them, who loved them, who chose them to be not just this house of prayer, but to be a light for the nations. Maybe they would have known him as savior, or maybe they would have known him as David, known him as a shepherd, as the one who's personally known by them. They know his voice. He knows their voice. As the one who will use all the power to protect them, to provide for them, to bring them peace. But this God who served them, served them by loving them. And so we're called to love like God. And remember when Jesus summed up all the law and the prophets. What did he say? Love the Lord the God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So maybe when they thought about God as the stranger or God as the, 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 the one who is, is, is not just serving them but loving them, they thought about what does it mean to not just love God but love your neighbor. And I think they would have held on to verses like Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, which says what? When a foreigner or a stranger or an alien resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. That foreigner, that alien, that stranger residing among you must be treated as your native born, as one of you. Why? Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners, strangers, and aliens in Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. It's not just enough for us to know God. It's not just enough for us to appreciate what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. It's not just enough for us to say God comes in darkness and God comes in power. If we're going to be prepared, we must love well. If we're going to love well, we must serve well. If we're going to serve well, we must serve like our God. If you want to be prepared for the kingdom that's coming in the kingdom that's already come, you ought to live well to submit to the spirit. You ought to love well to serve like God. And then this third one, you ought to leave well and surrender like our Jesus. As I thought about the Jesus story this week, I was reminded about how much surrender that Jesus did to the Father. He surrendered heaven to come to earth. He surrendered a God who's outside of time to come into a physical human body in flesh to dwell in time. He surrendered to the Holy Spirit to show us how to live in a way to please God. He surrendered to the plan of God, saying multiple times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He surrendered in Gethsemane when he wasn't sure and said, God, are you sure? Are you sure, sure? But he surrendered by saying, not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered to the beating, the mocking, the abusing, the crucifixion. But our sin and death did not ultimately kill him. Because we read in the Gospels that what? He surrendered his spirit to the Father. That even after all the suffering, he says, you know what, Father? I surrender to you. He surrendered. And God comes through as he's raised from the dead. And even today, he surrenders to the Father, not just as a mediator, but as the groom who's preparing heaven for us. Not knowing the time that it's going to be complete, but still surrendering to the will of the Father. If we're going to leave well in this world, we must prepare to leave well. 
And that's hard for some of us because we don't like thinking about the end. But the truth is, either Jesus comes back or we go to him. That's our only two options. You know, it sounds a little bit crude, but no one gets out of this alive. Right? Like you're either going to have Jesus come back or you're going to go to him. So how do you prepare for the life in the kingdom to come? You prepare to leave well. How do you leave well? You be fruitful today. You be faithful today. You walk in that freedom that Jesus brings today. This week, I would say one of the most influential Christians of probably, especially here in North America, of probably the last hundred years, Tim Keller passed away. Now, there's a lot of people who disagree with him on a lot of theologies and a lot of different things that he said. But the thing I love about Tim Keller is he was committed to God, he was committed to the city, and he was committing to living and loving people. And there's a lot of us who can't check that off. And the thing I love about Keller is there was a, a tweet, because that's how we communicate in 2023 from his family, where his son says, like at the very end, Tim said, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Because he had that eternal salvation secured. He was prepared to meet Jesus because he had made that decision. But I thought about this quote from one of his books that I think helps us now in what it means to leave well. He says this. There's a famous story by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle is a painter who spends his entire life trying to paint a mural of a tree. By the end of his life, he has only gotten one leaf completed, and then he dies. But when he gets to heaven, he sees the tree that was always there in his mind. That is the way of the Christian. My son Jonathan is an urban planner. In his mind, he has all these exciting ideas about what a great city would look like. While as a Christian, he realizes that in his entire life, he may only get one leaf done of his beautiful vision. We all face that reality. Nevertheless... We live with the hope that there will be a tree, that there will be a city, that there will be a just society. Beauty will be there. Poverty and war will be gone. We are not saviors. Instead, hope can set us free. How are you preparing for heaven by preparing today to leave well? What are you actually passing down to your children and grandchildren? What are you passing down to your neighbors? What is this life that you're living, right? That, that when your time comes up, they can say, well done, good and faithful servant in heaven, but also on earth. What is the legacy we're living to leave behind? If we're going to be prepared, we must be a people who live well by submitting to the spirit, who love well by serving like our God and Father, and who leave well like our Jesus, who knew death was coming, prepared the kingdom to explode after he left. I'd like to invite up the, the, the choir, the worship team. Uh, we're going to be closing with um, Firm Foundation. And I, I sent a, a text to Hannah, and I was like, I was doing backflip trying to figure out how to tie all this together, right, as we sing this song. But I thought about in the song we sing about how Jesus is indeed our firm foundation. And I don't know much about building houses, right? I know it's a shock to you, right? You just look at me and you're like, contractor. That's what you see, right? But I don't know much about building houses. But I do know that each house doesn't just need a good foundation for a forever foundation. Because the storms will come. The waves will hit. The sun will shine. 
but what is that foundation that you're building your life upon? And for us as Christians, it's Jesus. It's always Jesus. So as we sing this song, I want you to stand up and sing with us. Come up for prayer if you need. We'd love to pray for you for anything's going on. But as we sing this song, may you be reminded twofold of how Jesus is indeed your firm foundation. But how are you right now living well, loving well, so that you can leave well? Amen? Let's stand and sing. Yeah. 
sing rain came. been around here for a while, you know, just about every spring, um, I find a way to work this poem into a sermon. Uh, it's probably my favorite poem and prayer. Um, it was written by a guy named Ken Utner um, in, in, in dedication to the life of Oscar Romero, who was one of my heroes of the faith. Um, and I wanted to, this to be our benediction because we think about, you know, preparing. And I thought about even Keller's story, this really Tolkien story about, you know, doing that leaf and, and expecting the tree in heaven. Um, this just really spoke to me. And if you've never heard it before, hopefully it speaks to you about what God calls us to do and how we be prepared now. And if you've heard it before, look for a new line that God might bless you with. Um, he says this, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond even our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that can be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals or objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already paint, planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, 
but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. We are ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. My sisters and brothers, it's my prayer this morning that as we leave, that we are people who in this life have not only had our eternity secured through faith in Jesus, but while we're here, we're living well by submitting to the Spirit. We're loving well like God loves. And we're preparing our friends, our family, our world for us to leave well so that even when we go to heaven in glory, the kingdom can go forth. Amen? God bless you all. Have a good week. Good song.